In this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. Live from a Montana wilderness fortress, Wednesday nights at 9 Eastern, this is the Matt Christensen Hour. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Matt Christensen and this is the Matt Christensen Hour on Tenet Media. Thank you for tuning in. I'm joined as always by my producer down under, Tim. Good day, Tim. Good day. Apologies for the voice tonight, guys. I'm a little under the weather, so. Well, thank you for showing up despite the ailment. It is much appreciated. Thank you for your efforts. No guests tonight, but we do have some great guests coming up in March, and there is plenty of news to discuss in the meantime, anyhow. In the Michigan uh, primary yesterday, Arab voters rejected Biden on mass voting uncommitted to send him a message that he will not have their support if he doesn't change his policy approach to the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley unsurprisingly loses again and pledges to carry on again, but she'll have to carry on on a tighter budget, it looks like. Uh, just a few hours ago, Megyn Kelly released some bombshell texts in the Fannie Willis disqualification case. Nathan Wade's former lawyer, Terrence Bradley, turns out sure knew a lot more than um, a lot more about the, the Wade Willis romance uh, than he than he led everyone to believe on the stand uh, yesterday. So those uh, well, there's more trouble for Fannie Willis. Unsurprisingly, that's what happens when you constantly lie. And it looks like it's getting further exposed. Another illegal immigrant has been arrested for murder, this time outside of Washington, D.C., and this time it's the murder of a two-year-old boy, apparently caught in some crossfire. Plus, we'll check in on how the bump stock case went at the Supreme Court earlier today, and a few other items if time allows. Plus, we'll take some email questions to close and your super chats on YouTube or Rumble as well. And remember, not only uh, the show is available, by the way, not just uh, in video format on YouTube, Rumble, or Facebook, but there are audio feeds as well, wherever you prefer to listen to your podcast. To find those feeds, check out the podcast page of my website, mattchristensenmedia.com slash podcasts. And thanks, as always, to Tenet Media for hosting. Follow them on X at Watch Tenet Now and Instagram at Watch Tenet for more great original content like this show, plus breaking news and viral videos. But hopping into the news... Did you know that today marks 31 years since the start of the Waco siege in 1993? Happy anniversary, says the ATF on Twitter today. As usual, it's impossible to tell if they're serious or if they're trolling, like when they um, you know, post images of people's dogs and things like that. But this looks like they're pretty serious since they had a, a fancy memorial service for the four fallen agents who were killed in the initial shootout. I noticed there's no corresponding memorial for the 80-plus people they killed, including 28 children, plus 11 others wounded when they lit the whole place on fire uh, a few weeks later in a supposedly unfortunate accident. Uh, as a reminder, you know, this is another reason why the bump stock case is so important. If you have pieces of plastic or metal that they don't like, they'll kill your family and burn your house down and then make themselves the victim in all of it. So if we want to honor the sacrifice, dissolve the unconstitutional agency. 
the sacrifice of that day is entirely the fault of that agency. And if you want some laughs that I can't show on screen because they may get this stream in trouble with the YouTube overlords, check out the replies to this particular tweet with the ATF. They give me faith that all is not lost in humanity, though I suspect someone at the ATF is sitting around reading them and filing them and deciding who to raid next. So, you know, I might be careful in my own replies, although I've indulged in the past. Also big news today. Uh, Enjoy the time that you have left with the Dr. Seuss turtle as your Senate Republican leader, because it's coming to a close. Mitch McConnell is leaving his leadership role in the Senate. He is pulling his head back inside of his shell. He's uh, he's leaving the leadership role in November. He's not leaving the Senate entirely. He plans to finish his term, which ends in January 2027. A preposterous quote from his staff here. Despite those recent health episodes, you remember him freezing mid-sentence at the podium well, sometime last year. Uh, McConnell and his team say the decision is unrelated to his health. Unrelated to his health. As far as who will um, replace McConnell. The early speculation is it'll be a race between the three Johns. Those Johns being John Barrasso of Wyoming, John Thune of South Dakota, and John Cornyn of Texas. Based on their own politicking, it would seem. Their own efforts to potentially uh, take over that leadership role. If you want my pick, please recruit Rand Paul. Though I understand that being a good leader and, uh, and, and being a principled person are two very different things. They're opposing concepts, which is why every one of these people in a congressional leadership role ends up selling their soul to the devil. But uh, may, maybe Rand Paul could, have, could buck the trend. I don't know. But uh, for, as much as, uh, for as much hate as Mitch McConnell gets, uh, and, and it is often deserved, I swear I'm not simping for Mitch, but since he's leaving, I will offer a few points of appreciation. And I think the main point is a major one. McConnell was a major force in helping Trump get better justices on the Supreme Court. That matters quite a lot. Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett are all on the bench with the help of Mitch McConnell. And I would say even more importantly, who's not on the bench because of Mitch McConnell? Merrick Garland. Mitch McConnell kept Merrick Garland off the Supreme Court in 2016 after Antonin Scalia died. So Garland, of course, is a disaster as an attorney general. Yeah, but uh, but at least that's not a lifetime appointment. And uh, the turtle saved us on that one, I think. Let's get into the uh, Michigan primary. Yesterday, of course, was the vote in the Michigan primary. And the bottom line is it's not really much surprising. Trump beats Haley yet again bringing uh, her grand total of states one to zero. And of course, Joe Biden wins because he's the incumbent, but not without the Nikki Haley style surge in people voting for anybody else, not specifically somebody else, just in general, anybody else. Officially, the results are um, with almost all the votes in uh, Trump beats Haley 68% to Nikki Haley's 27%. Uh, and, uh, as with all the other states running open primaries, there is, uh, it's fair to question and fair to speculate how much of Haley's vote actually comes from Democrats or left-wingers who are protest voting against Trump. We'll get to more on that in a moment. The real news from the primary was Joe Biden getting 81% of the vote and not because of some surge from Marianne Williamson or Dean Phillips. 
It's because uncommitted, as in these delegates should go to anybody else, somebody else, uncommitted pulled 13% of the vote, over 100,000 voters. And so that uncommitted vote is actually a formal protest push by mostly Arab residents in uh, Michigan who are unhappy with Joe Biden's support for Israel and the continued war in Gaza. So weeks ago, they started organizing um, for people not just to abstain from voting in this primary, but to actively vote somebody else, to actively vote uncommitted to send a message to Biden that he doesn't have their support if he doesn't secure a ceasefire and or stop funding the war. The campaign's original goal was to get 10,000 protest votes. And the reason they chose that benchmark is because that is the about the margin by which Trump beat Hillary in 2016. So that number would show Biden that Michigan is no guarantee. But they actually got over 10 times that amount. They got over 100,000 votes. And here's some commentary from some of those voters last night. We demand a permanent ceasefire now. If he doesn't get it together and change what he's doing, we will not vote for him in November. I didn't feel good about voting for Joe Biden. Um, He's been pretty complicit about the genocide happening in Palestine. The efforts organizers had set their goal at 10,000 votes. They got more than 10 times that. You voted for President Biden in 2020, so you think in November you might vote for former President Trump? Correct. I think it's a great idea to vote and commit it to send that message that the the commentary from that last guy there is very interesting the guy who's talking about actually voting for trump not just not voting for biden but actively switching and voting for trump i've got to assume that's probably not representative that is to say if this were to hold in the general which maybe it will maybe it won't we'll get to that in a moment but if if they were to hold in that protest vote i can't imagine you know, something close to a majority would actually flip for Trump, but that guy, at least as an individual, is is talking about it. Uh, that would, of course, double the effect if not only are they leaving Biden, but they're voting Trump. Now, the numbers here within the Muslim community are, are massive. In Dearborn specifically, where more than half of the population is Middle Eastern or, or North, North African descent, I suppose I should say Arab population, predominantly Muslim, but not necessarily exclusively. You get what I mean. Biden actually lost to uncommitted straight up in Dearborn. The vote tally this morning in Dearborn was 57% for uncommitted, 40% for Joe Biden. That's out of about 11,300 or so voters. Biden also lost to uncommitted in the significantly Arab and Muslim communities of, uh, how do I, Hamtramck, I think is how I call that, what that place is called, Hamtramck, and Dearborn Heights as well. There's a, there's a care exit poll here. And care lies about a lot of stuff, so I'm not taking what they say as for sure true, but this is what they're claiming. Care says they did an exit poll, and they're saying 94% of Muslim voters in Michigan voted uncommitted. I mean, effectively speaking, every Muslim voter in the state gave Joe Biden the finger is what they're saying. I don't know if it's quite that extreme, but this is what care is, is claiming. There is some pushback. From uh, from the Biden campaign, a Biden campaign official speaking anonymously with NPR for this reporting said that the campaign isn't worried because this uncommitted vote was uh, it wasn't much higher than it was in 2012 at 11 percent 
The campaign official also said that Biden's vote, uh, his vote total of over 600,000 is encouraging in an effectively uncontested primary. Better turnout than 2012, they say. Uh, if that commentary is uh, is correct about the attitude within the Biden campaign, that would contradict. Um, how did I just close it out? Well, whatever. There goes the page. <laughs> There's a quote from uh, a, a, some, uh, a source close to Biden in political uh, Politico playbook who, uh, who actually said they're freaking out internally. The, the, the team Biden is freaking out about this uncommitted vote. Now, the source speaking with NPR here is someone within the campaign, they say. The source speaking with Politico was just someone close to Biden. Uh, not necessarily in the campaign, but conflicting information about how the Biden how the Biden team is um, is handling this information. Of course, the question really, though, is will it matter? Because historical trends don't necessarily matter. What matters is how it turns out in this election. And that depends on two questions. Um, number one, is the quantity significant enough to sway the election in the general? And number two, will those uncommitted votes hold? Now, on the first question, that number is not only absolutely big enough to swing Michigan, but of course, Michigan is a state that theoretically could determine the outcome of the presidential election itself. As mentioned, Trump beat Hillary in Michigan by just 10,000 votes. Biden beat Trump in Michigan by 150,000 votes. So a swing of 100,000 or so um, against Biden could absolutely change the result. They'll have to work some overtime on the on the ballot harvesting, perhaps, though. Uh, I was looking, Michigan is a little bit more restrictive on some of those um, voting methods than some other states. But uh, the second question, will this number actually hold a couple considerations? Do you believe these protest voters, these Arab Muslim protest voters in Michigan, when they say they will not vote for Biden in the general if he doesn't change his policies? And normally when I hear this kind of stuff from like your typical nose ring college kid, coffee shop progressive, I take it with a grain of salt because they talk a big game and then they all come home on election day. They 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 act like they're going to do some principled protest, but at the end of the day they hate Trump. So they go they go vote for for Biden. But for the practicing Muslim community, I kind of believe them. I think this is a top issue for them to which they probably are very devoted, which itself is kind of a problem I would say because foreign wars and interests in the interests of foreign countries uh, should probably not be this influential in U.S. politics. But that is the situation that we're in. So do I believe that these protesters will stick to that threat and abstain from voting for Biden in the general? More than I believe the typical progressive, yeah. But the other variable in that consideration is what happens in Israel and Gaza in the meantime. Now, supposedly, there's going to be a ceasefire soon. There is a lot of time on the clock regardless. So even if that ceasefire doesn't happen this weekend or next week or whenever Biden predicted, if a ceasefire is agreed to any time between now and November, which is still more than half a year away, presumably that would be a come home to Biden moment for a lot of these Muslim voters. So if this uncommitted uh, vote ends up being nothing but hype, that my guess is that would be how that there's some sort of peace agreement between Israel and Hamas or some sort of de-escalation, and these uncommitted protest voters return to Biden that way. But that's the Democrat side of what happened in uh, in Michigan yesterday. 
let's get back to the uh, the Republican side, where again, uh, Trump beat Haley 68-27. Trump got over uh, 750,000 votes, uh, which is about the same as all the Democrat votes combined, by the way, including the protest uncommitted votes. So for all this Biden talk about encouraging turnout, the Trump vote was was right there. Uh, and not just, I mean, he obviously exceeded Biden's vote tally, but all Democrat votes combined. Though, of course, in fairness, that is what we'd expect for the party out of power in a primary like this. They should have higher turnout, and they did. Now, the question has continued through all of these open or partially open primary states since New Hampshire. How much is Nikki Haley being assisted by Democrat anti-Trump protest votes? And I haven't seen a lot of good exit polling in Michigan to answer that question. But a few days after the South Carolina primary on Saturday, there's some good evidence to say a lot. Now, breaking down these uh, exit polls on my Sunday stream, I talked about how it was about a quarter of voters in the South Carolina Republican primary identified as Democrat or independent. And then uh, also about a quarter identified as moderate or left wing in their views. Those those voters overlapped and tended to support Nikki Haley. She won those groups. So how much of uh, Nikki Haley's vote then was actually tricky Democrats? Well, according to data from AP VoteCast, 40% of Nikki Haley's voters in South Carolina, her home state where she was governor, of course, 40% of her support was people who voted for Biden in 2020. According to this report, about half of Haley's voters said they were motivated to vote uh, to oppose Trump, not necessarily to support Nikki Haley, but to oppose Trump. So these aren't people who have changed their minds, it would seem. They're not people who voted for Biden and now regret it and they think about coming over. No, these are people who hate Trump. They're sabotage votes. They don't care about supporting Nikki Haley and they wouldn't in the general. So for all the talk about how Trump is underperforming as an incumbent, I would say more truthfully, Nikki Haley's numbers are effectively fake. They're inflated by people who don't actually support her and wouldn't if she was the nominee. And that doesn't mean that Donald Trump won't have a challenge in the fall to persuade independent voters. He will. But the claim, the claims that he's not winning as easily over a challenger as he should be, I think, are are based mostly on Democrat sabotage, not a discontent Republican electorate. But of course, we'll have to see how true independents actually respond to his campaign, where he has had some trouble in the past. Now, Nikki Haley says she's not quitting. She's going to she's going to carry on, but she is going to hit the financial wall soon. Once she gets wrecked on Tuesday, remember, we've got Super Tuesday coming up. Once she gets wrecked in all of those states and loses in all of those states, which is highly likely to happen, her donations are going to start drying up and they already have started drying up. After her loss in South Carolina on Saturday, the Americans for Prosperity Super PAC, the Koch family group, announced they are stopping spending to support Nikki Haley, though they, of course, still support her campaign philosophically and in spirit. So that's worth very much. But she's not she's not going to get that Coke money going forward, where they're not going to be spending money on her behalf, more accurately. I'm not convinced that's going to get Nikki Haley out, though. I, I do believe that she is um, she does intend to break the record. She wants to lose in all 50 states in the primary. I don't think anyone's ever done that before. And if Nikki Haley has to start an OnlyFans account, 
uh, aboard her campaign bus, I think she might do that. Uh, Tim, you had a thought? Yeah, so every speech that she's made so far has been for one state, if I'm not mistaken. So she made a speech for an election one state, then the next one was for one state. I'm really curious to see what her uh, speech is going to be like if she loses every state in Super Tuesday. Because they've all been victory speeches, essentially, which is weird. Yeah, I can't wait, but we're going to find out. Tuesday night should be a fun night. How many states is there on Super Tuesday, do you know? Uh, I forget. Isn't it like a a dozen or something like that? That's a thing I should know off the top of my head. How many states Super Tuesday? Let me answer It's at least double digits, which if she loses all, I I don't know how you Uh, come out. 16. 16. Wow, that's a lot to lose in one go. She'll do it. And she'll she'll spin it into a win. Just watch. We'll talk about it next week. Um, all right. I want to get into the Fanny Willis stuff because man, was this, uh, I'm, I'm surprising would be the wrong word. We all know what happened here. I guess it, it, it's just, it's so entertaining to watch the depths to which these people will lie and still stick to the lie, no matter how much evidence comes out to expose them as liars. But, uh, all right, that's what they're going with. There was a hearing, um, yesterday. And uh, this the hearing yesterday uh, involved uh, former Nathan Wade attorney Terrence Bradley. So Terrence Bradley is a former friend of Nathan. I don't know. Maybe they're still friends, but at least prior they were they were friends. And he was Nathan Wade's lawyer in Nathan Wade's divorce proceeding. Now, somehow that went south and they have split and it has something to do with Terrence Bradley getting accused of sexual harassment in the workplace or, you know, I don't know the details of all of that, but it's gone South between Nathan Wade, Fannie Willis's boyfriend and his former lawyer, Terrence Bradley. And Terrence Bradley was supposed to be this star witness for the Trump lawyers. And he took the stand after some question about whether he should be protected by attorney client privilege or not. He took the stand um, yesterday and he delivered a dud. He was evasive. He wouldn't, say what knowledge he had. They brought out some text messages and he, in the text messages, he responded to Ashley merchant, Michael Roman, the Trump co-defendants lawyer. She said, well, I had texted you asking you if, if the romantic relationship between Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade began before Nathan Wade was hired as, um, as the special prosecutor in this case. And you responded, absolutely. And, and, on the stand, he tried to say, well, no, I was just speculating. I didn't I didn't say that I had specific knowledge of when their relationship started. I was just speculating. And and that, <laughs> it's, it's it just seems like a very weird reversal where this guy's apparently texting a bunch of stuff to Ashley Merchant, the Trump co-defendant lawyer, about everything he knows. And then he gets on the stand. And he says, well, actually, I don't I don't really know anything. So we uh, yesterday, we didn't know the content of those texts the text between uh, Terrence Bradley, Nathan Wade's lawyer and Ashley merchant, the Trump co-defendant lawyer through whom this whole story broke. So, uh, the, but the content of those text messages, it, it, it's now out and it's now out through Megan Kelly, who got a hold of these text messages and published them just this afternoon. And this stuff further confirms what we already know in texts in January. Bradley tells Ashley Merchant that uh, about uh, trips that Willis and Wade took together to Florida, Texas, and California. We have received evidence of, of some of that already, but he's 
He's talking about more trips even beyond what we knew. Bradley admits in these text messages, yeah, it's completely insane that Fanny Willis would hire her boyfriend, Nathan Wade. Uh, he also uh, responds to an Ashley Merchant text asking him when uh, the romantic relationship started between Nathan Wade and Fanny Willis. And he says, oh, yeah, it started um, when she left the DA's office and uh, was a judge in South Fulton. So that's that's 2019. Again, Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade have maintained that there's nothing unethical or corrupt about what they've done because they were not involved in a romantic relationship until after Fannie Willis hired Nathan Wade as special prosecutor to go after Trump. This would be yet another piece of evidence that challenges that assertion. And then when when Merchant asks him in these texts again in early January, hey, is this a correct way to characterize the nature of the relationship between um, Fannie Willis and, and Nathan Wade as you understand it as a witness to all this happened? And he says, uh, she asks, well, they were both judges in a, in a certain court at the time. Can I say that? And he says, no, municipal court. Oh, thanks. But you can't put that they met in municipal court in your filing because very few people know that like I do. And if you put that in there, then everyone will know, or at least Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade will know that I'm the source on this information. So you have this guy on the stand yesterday claiming he knows effectively nothing about when his friend and you know former client Nathan Wade started this romantic relationship with Fannie Willis. Lo and behold, we have all these texts now that show him texting Ashley Merchant just a, just six weeks ago or so, um, a couple months ago, saying he knows everything about this. In fact, he knows specific details that very few others know, and you can't say that you know those details, otherwise they'll know that he's the source. So you have to wonder why. Why has he... Why has uh, Terrence Bradley gone from basically the, the source of information that fed all of this to the Trump co-defendant lawyer, Ashley Merchant, who broke this story wide open and busted up the case? Why has he gone from guy who knows everything to guy who knows nothing? Well, a couple possibilities on that. Uh, maybe they maybe he's threatened by Nathan Wade and Fannie Willis. Maybe they have some way to punish him. Uh, maybe they have some dirt on him. The fact that they split on allegations of sexual harassment, among other controversies, maybe uh, maybe Terrence Bradley just wants to avoid having investigation into him as part of this whole legal mess. But he's now created a legal mess for himself by taking the stand and acting like he knows nothing when, in fact, there's all this evidence that shows not only does he know a lot of stuff, he's basically the source of this entire claim in the first place. Uh, or, you know, maybe, uh, Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade have offered him <laughs> some sweet vacations on the public dime and he wants to, he wants to, uh, enjoy those. And so he's going to act like he knows nothing now. So as not to betray them, um, either way, whether Terrence Bradley is just trying to protect himself by not, by, by not revealing everything he knows, or because he's threatened by Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade, or they've offered him some incentive or something like that. Whatever's going on to explain his complete 180 from what we see in the text here to what we saw on the stand yesterday, this is devastating for both Willis and Wade and, and Bradley himself. Again, further evidence of the Willis and Wade corruption that is now undeniably clear. 
And it's evidence of borderline perjury for Bradley, too. At this point, uh, Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade have lied. At least there's a strong case. They've lied on the stand under oath. They've lied in sworn statements in court. If this isn't an, an outright lie by Terrence Bradley, I mean, this is uh, as close as you can possibly get to the line by just playing dumb as he did. He's saying he doesn't know, but he clearly knew. And and just professionally now, um, Terrence Bradley's in a lot of trouble because he's either going to have to admit that he, well, he, he can go back to the court and say, yeah, I, I lied a bunch on the stand. I mean, that's going to be a big legal problem. If he does that, uh, or, or I guess the other way out of it is he could say, I didn't lie on the stand. I made it all up. <laughs> like I was just lying to Ashley Merchant in those texts. Okay. Then you're saying as a lawyer, you make up lies about your clients and spread them to other lawyers that good luck maintaining a reputable lawyer business. If that's your explanation, not a lot of, um, of good explanations available for Terrence Bradley after what has come out now. Now, as far as what's next, the judge has scheduled a hearing for Friday for both sides to give arguments on disqualifying Willis and Wade. It's not expected that the judge will rule then, um, but uh, potentially soon. We might have a decision on this disqualification within the next week or two. Uh, and rem- and as a reminder, in the first hearing on all of this evidence about the Willis and Wade corruption, the judge said that even the appearance of a conflict of interest may be sufficient for disqualification. I'm not an expert on what Georgia law has to say about disqualification here, but just going by what the judge said at that first hearing, even the appearance of a conflict of interest may be grounds for disqualification. You get well beyond just the appearance at this point. You have demonstrable corruption. So we'll see what happens to Miss Fannie Willis and her boyfriend, Nathan Wade. Uh, I, I remain highly entertained by this story and I'll tune in for each and every episode and there'll be more soon. Moving on, uh, well, we're still investigating the one that happened last week, but there's already another one this week. Another illegal immigrant arrested in connection to a murder. In fact, he has murder charges on him, so either he is the one who did the kill. This strikes me as, at least as it's described, something like the Kansas City shooting, where there's a, a dispute among youths and people are caught in the crossfire, but it involves an illegal immigrant. This is Prince George County, Maryland, right outside D.C. The police department has charged, I think this is the denonym, El Salvadorian. I think that's someone from El Salvador. You call them an El Salvadorian, I think. This is Nilson Noel Trejo Granados. They've charged him with murder and assault, uh, several murder and assault charges, after there was a, a shootout between apparently this guy and some others. And this dude has a mugshot that looks like a Geico caveman. Turns out entering this country and getting away with repeated crimes is so easy. (laughs) So easy that even a caveman can do it. Uh, A 17-year-old mother and her two-year-old boy were caught in the crossfire. And the boy was killed. His name was Jeremy Pucaceres. I don't know. It's not even clear who the boy's mom is in this reporting, or at least as far as I've seen. This... I'm speculating here because I haven't seen confirmation of this. This sounds like it might be illegal on illegal violence, but I don't know. Uh, Not that that makes it justified or okay, but uh, it sounds like a lot of the people involved here may have um, trafficked in similar circles. 
or perhaps it was just another um, female jogging incident gone wrong, as the AP explained the Lake and Riley murder last week. Maybe this mom was just out jogging with her two-year-old son, and she was caught in the crossfire because it's so dangerous to jog as a solo female these days. But this latest arrest of this caveman guy is actually the fifth in this particular case. There are uh, two minors who have been arrested. They're a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old. Two other men arrested after driving a stolen vehicle to the scene and opening fire. So it sounds like some kind of group shootout, some kind of gang shootout, something to that effect. Uh, group dispute that turns into a shooting. But this illegal immigrants lawyer saying he was it was just wrong place, wrong time. That's what happened to uh, poor caveman guy. Wrong place, wrong time. Now, Prince George's County, where this happened and where this illegal was arrested, is a sanctuary jurisdiction, meaning, of course, it does not cooperate with ICE detainer requests, as in they don't turn illegal immigrants over to federal immigration enforcement. This guy was actually arrested multiple times prior to this particular incident and was supposed to be deported on November 7th, 2022, ICE said in a statement. Should have been deported uh, several times Following that order as well, he was arrested March 21st, 2023 for theft. ICE tried to detain him, but neighboring Montgomery County, Maryland, let him go. He was arrested again September 26th, 2023. Same thing. Theft. And ICE tried to get him. Montgomery County again let him go. Of course, this arrest comes... um, Shortly after the arrest of Jose Antonio Ibarra in Athens, Georgia, charged, of course, in the murder of uh, 2020 uh, of 22-year-old nursing student Lakin Riley, Ibarra is, of course, likewise an illegal immigrant who likewise had been arrested multiple times in sanctuary jurisdictions and, and released. Uh, according to new court documents, in that case, Ibarra beat Riley so badly with a still unidentified weapon that he seriously disfigured her skull, is what they say. But of course, what's very important is that we not be hateful about that skull disfiguration. Don't let these absolutely barbaric crimes of people who shouldn't be here in the first place and have no right to be here, don't let those crimes allow you to make judgments about poor migrant families. This was actually the message of the Athens, Georgia mayor, Kelly Gritz, yesterday. He uh, held a press conference to give more details on this murder, and hecklers started interrupting him. They blamed him for the sanctuary city policy in Athens and said he's facilitating the problem. And in response, the mayor invoked Charlottesville and Trump's hatred and other bizarre progressive delusions that are, of course, nowhere near as important as the, the murder of this poor young woman. Here's some of that exchange. You might remember the dynamic we were living in in the late teens in this country where you had the president of the United States speaking in the most vile terms about people who were foreign born. And you had that notion oh, metastasizing in places like Charlottesville. This is an <laughs> What we wish to do is dignify everybody's humanity. You're talking BS to us right now. Uh, I need to answer one question at a time. What we wish to do is to understand that those families that are here 
came here under less than ideal circumstances. We want to create a stable environment for people in our communities. And when that community is disrupted by hate or vitriol, that's not a safe environment for their school children and their families to live in. Call righteous indignation. Yeah, what is also undignifying and unsafe is uh, murder and disfiguring skulls. And to prioritize anything other than that in this context is delusional and insane and a disgrace, frankly. But these people won't stop until their own kids' heads are disfigured, and maybe not even then. The mayor added as part of this press conference, there is no uh, provable connection. He made this point on CNN, too. There's no provable connection between immigration and crime. I caution against conflating immigration and crime. The data demonstrates that the two are not connected. I don't know. I would bet that people entering a country without regard for that country's immigration policy or law might not hesitate to violate that country's laws in other ways. That's just a theoretical speculation, I suppose. I don't have the data to back it up, but there's some data to that effect, which I'll get to in a moment. But even if it is true that there's not uh, some some data connection between an open border sanctuary policy and crime like this, well, there certainly is a connection in this particular case. Our refusal to enforce our immigration law, even after this guy had been arrested multiple times, enabled directly the murder of this woman. That is a direct connection between immigration and the crime in this case. And you can dismiss this as just an anecdote, I know Katie Porter was on, uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter was on CNN yesterday or the day before and said, well, we can't craft our immigration policy based on one particular instance. Well, I don't know. If you're this poor young woman's family, you might disagree. Uh, I, the, the point is, any one of these murders, whether there are more of them or fewer of them than there are from the, the population of citizens overall, Every single one of them is one that shouldn't happen because the person who did it doesn't have a right to be here in the first place. That's a direct connection. It's like how many how many murders by people who aren't supposed to be here are you willing to accept to pursue your progressive delusions? Does it really take until they come after your family personally for you to le- for you to learn this lesson? But if you want more data than anecdote, if you consider that to be an emotional appeal or something like that, Well, here's some. Apparently, Venezuela's homicide rate has dropped significantly as hordes of Venezuelan migrants have come to the U.S. Yes, it's getting safer in Venezuela as all the killers come here and various other criminals. What an amazing effect uh, happens when when criminals can just disappear and have their criminal past erased by going to a place that won't vet them at all. According to the Venezuela Violence Observatory, which you know, it's, decide for yourself if you believe that is if you believe this is a quality data collection or not. But this is according to them. Um, homicides in Venezuela dropped 25 percent last year. That would be the lowest level in 22 years. And the reasoning in the report that is saying that homicide is dropping in Venezuela is this quote, young people who have traditionally been the main victims of violence, have fled, while criminals and gangs have immigrated due to the lack of opportunities to commit crimes. In other words, the crime business is more prosperous in the U.S. than in Venezuela, or at least the prospect of the crime business is better in the U.S., in the judgment of many of these people. 
And there's evidence to that effect too. Again, talk about how there's no data to support this idea. Over the last three years, since 2021, uh, crime in Chicago by Venezuelan-born people has increased 11,000%. But sure, we're going to sit here and say there's no connection at all. No, no connection. At all. There's a connection in theory and in data. And just think about this as a rational human being with common sense. If you provide opportunity and sanctuary for criminals, they're, they're going to come take advantage of that. That's, that's not a myth. That's not like some kooky conspiracy theory. If you're a criminal who's fleeing the law in your own country and you have a free path to asylum in another, why would you have to be an idiot not to take it? And, and they do by all available evidence. And there are dangers that are manifesting against American citizens and being realized in the way, the tragic and horribly brutal ways that we've just discussed. But uh, I'm sure there will be more on that front in future episodes as well. Let's talk about the bump stock case at the Supreme Court. Now, uh, as discussed with my guest, Michael Cargill, last week, today was the day. This morning, the Supreme Court heard the arguments in Garland versus Cargill on whether the DOJ and the ATF can just ban bump stocks with their own pen stroke rather than by an act of Congress. And I won't go over all that detail again. If you're interested in why this case is so important, not just for gun rights, but for process of law and for property rights, have a listen back to that interview segment in last week's show. I uh, I have not had time to listen to the arguments uh, today, but Tim did have a listen. I know he has a thought, which we'll get to in a moment, or, or a quote that he thought was particularly interesting. But as far as I understand, and I'm, I'm leaning on the coverage in bearing arms here, the core of the argument, as expected, the way it went today, the core of the argument was around the definition of machine gun in federal law, exactly as Michael Cargill explained to us last week. And uh, the definition of machine gun under federal law is a firearm that can fire multiple rounds through a single function of the trigger. Now, as a matter of mechanical function, bump stocks don't do that. Bump stocks do not change the function of the trigger at all. You can put a bump stock on a semi-auto AR. All you've done is change the butt end of that gun. The trigger pack remains semi-auto, one trigger pull, or one trigger function as is described in the law, you get one round. That's a semi-automatic weapon. Lawyers for the government are trying, uh, apparently, to, to argue that when the law says trigger function, what they really mean is action of the shooter. Does the word function refer to mechanical function, as in the components of the firearm? Or does it refer to the action of the shooter. They're saying that it only requires a single function of the shooter to release multiple rounds. Therefore it's a machine gun. We heard Michael Cargill last week joking that uh, competitive shooters might be considered machine guns because their trigger fingers are so fast. Well, that was, he meant that as a joke, but that's kind of where government lawyers went apparently. Uh, and it doesn't even make sense. Like, first of all, that's clearly not what federal law was written to describe. It was never written to describe skill of the shooter, ability of the shooter. It's written to describe the components and the mechanical workings of the actual piece of equipment, the firearm in this context. But even if I, if I bought this 
this ridiculous reasoning that it's one function of the shooter that releases multiple rounds. No, it isn't. Okay, for a bump stock to function, you still need forward pressure with your offhand, your forward hand, and you still need the trigger pressure with your trigger hand. So it's not, there's either one of those individually, like forward pressure on the forehand will not release multiple rounds. Your finger on the trigger will not release multiple rounds. It's not, you don't get multiple rounds through either of those functions individually. So it doesn't, still doesn't make any sense. Um, but, and I think it's a dishonest reading of the, of the law regardless. Like they, they, in no other firearm law, do we talk about the ability of the shooter to manipulate the weapon? We talk about when you look at the rest of um, the NFA, the national firearms act or, or any other, uh, uh, laws that restrict what types of weapons were, you know, you're allowed to have or under what conditions you're allowed to have them, what registration is required or whatever. It's about the mechanical components of the gun. It's not about how proficiently you use it as a skilled shooter or not. That makes no sense. Um, but uh, Tim, you, you had a, you listened in on, on some of the arguments today. You had a quote from one of the lawyers that you thought was interesting. Yeah, so I watched the whole thing, and you pretty much nailed the two sides of the argument. Um, the government's lawyer spoke first, the uh, Michael Cargill's lawyer spoke afterwards, and then the government lawyer was given a chance to basically do a closing statement. And he said something that just jumped out at me. I take it from my friend's argument today, he does not seriously dispute that a rifle with a bump stock does basically the same thing as a machine gun and is basically just as dangerous as a machine gun. Yeah. Basically, as in not actually. Yeah, Uh, pretty much. Which is, of course, a ridiculous argument. The law rests on precise definitions, not close enough ideas. Otherwise, of course, (laughs) the law can be created and applied on whims, which is the entire problem in this case. We don't put someone on the stand and say that guy basically committed murder because there's manslaughter of different types. There's murder of different types. And those distinctions, while subtle, they're basically the same. They all involve unlawfully or unjustly killing a person. But there are distinctions between those things that have massive legal importance. The same sort of principle applies. Anytime anytime someone says in a legal context, you're right, like, well, it's basically the same. That is not the way the law works. Basically the same is not the way the law works at all. Uh, and I take the argument as one of desperation. It doesn't mean it's a, a slam. I, frankly, I think that's kind of a good sign that they're willing to concede the mechanical argument entirely. I mean, if they're not going that route, that's kind of an argument of desperation, which I'm somewhat encouraged by. That's not to say that I think it's a slam dunk for for Cargill and against the bump stock ban. Uh, According to this coverage in Bearing Arms, this is writer Cam Edwards, uh, he thinks that Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett are pretty safely in Cargill's corner based on their questions. Of course, that's only four. He's not sure about either Roberts or Kavanaugh. And uh, he, he says that Kavanaugh was pretty aggressive with both sides. Roberts was mostly quiet during the arguments, but he did ask, he did ask a question about what I was just talking about. How does a shooter's offhand have to work in order to make the bump stock function as intended? So maybe he was chipping away at their shooter function argument a little bit. But even if you don't get both Kavanaugh and Roberts, all you need is one to make this a 5-4 decision. So I'm cautiously optimistic on this case. 
we of course should see a decision sometime before the end of the term in June. Well, hey, look at that, Tim. I actually have a little bit of extra time. I have some optional topics. I wasn't sure if I, uh, if I, <laughs> I don't know, should I, should I skip these and aim to just try to actually be under one hour for once? Or should I get into the topics that I actually prepped? I want to talk about some of these topics. What do you think, Tim? I know you're, uh, that's uh, up to you. I've got nowhere to be. Fill it. Okay. Let's, let's, yeah, except, except bed. I might want to go sleep after this. But other than right. that, go I'll ahead. try to be, I'll try to be quick. I at least want to talk about Joy Reed's bizarre rant. Cause this is one of the most insane things I've ever heard. And I, I know it's from a person who's frequently insane and I shouldn't take it as too much demonstration of just how fallen our country is becoming. But when such basic moral concepts become twisted, not just into like, um, irrelevant concerns, but into active evils. I, I worry for where our country's going. Uh, if that doesn't make a lot of sense in the way I'm framing it, let me, let me explain. Last week there was, um, as part of this controversy surrounding the the IVF uh, surrounding IVF and the court decision in in Alabama, uh, which by the way has been wildly mischaracterized, I posted that about that on Saturday. You can check out the video if you'd like all the details on it and what the decision actually says versus the way it's being characterized in the media. But heck, reporters car- uh, uh, cornered Alabama Senator Tommy Tub- uh, Tuberville. And asked him about what he thinks about women not having access to IVF because of the court decision, which is not the correct framing because that's not what the decision says. But they cornered him. They tried to pin him. Tommy Tuberville responded something to the effect of, well, we need more children in this country. And he got ripped up and down because they're saying, well, how can you how can you uh, try to try to restrict IVF, but also want more children? Blah, blah, blah. That's not really what Joy Reid was going after. Um, Joy Reid was going after the concept of just believing that we should have more children in general. Now, once a, once upon a time, believing that children are valuable for their own sake and having kids is a positive thing for a person's life in general, we used we used to believe that it was kind of a basic concept. Somehow, that's a a controversial statement now. And um, and <laughs> MSNBC host and Karen cosplayer Joy Reid is having none of it. Uh, none of it on TikTok. She posted this bizarre video in which she um, she says wanting more kids implies that you want more slaves. The United States has a population of, of north of 327 million people. Why do we need more kids? Your party, Senator Tuberville, is the one screaming that 10 million immigrants, which I don't even know that that number even makes any sense because... It doesn't um, have streamed into the country since Joe Biden has been president. And you're claiming that that's too many people. Can you explain who's the we and what's the purpose? Are you saying the state of Alabama needs more kids? Why does the state of Alabama need more kids? More kids for what? There was a time when the state of Alabama absolutely needed more kids because, you know, Alabama was a slave state. And the mandate of the planter class in Alabama was for black women to produce more kids because those kids were property. Are you saying the state of Alabama needs more kids because you think that those populations will include people who are maybe destitute and desperate enough if you kick out the immigrants like a lot of y'all want to do and you could make them do the work that the migrants are doing now? Because that kind of sounds slavery-ish. I mean, you're also a white guy. Are you saying the we is... White folks need more kids. It's a little creepy. A little handmaid's tale, don't you think? 
Okay, so just the concept of having children is like inherently uh, creepy and bizarre now. I, I can't even count the points of absolute idiocy in this clip. Okay, Just the basic premise. If the idea that having children is good is treated as morally suspect, that is a strong indicator of just how diseased and wicked our society is becoming. Having children is good for its own sake because human life has value for its own sake. End of moral story. We used to understand these things. But does your country want a future or not? If so, you need kids. Those 330 or so million people she, she's talking about, they're not immortal. They will die. So if you'd like an America in the future, you're going to need children for that to happen. The implication here that white people would only want children for labor or slavery or some bizarre explanation, or maybe because they, like everyone, would like to have a future and a legacy too. And if you wouldn't question any other group, racial, ethnic, whatever, who would like to have children to continue on, um, if you only question Americans and white people in that endeavor, that is a discriminatory double standard, of course, because it's not only perfectly acceptable, it's a moral good to have children of your own, to carry on your legacy, to, to honor those who made your life possible. That is the reason, by the way, that Joy Reid herself has children of her own, didn't adopt a bunch of foreigners or something like that. What does he mean? We, what does he mean? We, he means Americans, you crazy lady. Current generations of Americans will die and we will need new generations to replace them or we will die as a society. And if you think you can just import other people's kids and have the country remain America, good luck. It's not going to happen. Though that's probably not her goal. I assume she has goals otherwise. There's also just the practical politics of it, though. If you want a government with massive social spending programs, as I assume Joy Reid generally does, I don't want to claim policy positions she may not hold, but I feel like I have a general understanding of her view of government and the federal government. You're going to need productive workers to support that concept. Without young people, the system crumbles. So good luck with your reparations when there's nobody around to work or pay for that. It is amazing that this lady can say such incredibly stupid stuff with such confidence and such conviction, but I guess that's why they pay her the big bucks over at MSNBC if you say anything with enough confidence, it will be uh, very believable, at least to some people. Now, uh, let's see. I put a couple other things here. I wanted to mention uh, Dr. Phil over on The View on Monday. He, he was on the show and the topic of COVID and school lockdowns came up. Now, Dr. Phil said just the basic truth that children were never at serious risk from the virus. And that the insane lockdown actions that we took were much more damaging on children than the virus was from academic performance that was that was damaged abuse intervention. He talks about, which is something that I hadn't thought a lot about, but he has some data to cite to say that, like, yeah, as part of lockdowns, we didn't help kids being abused in the way we normally would because we you know, we just told everyone to go home, regardless of whether they had a safe home or not. And the view women are still committed to the delusion that keeping kids home from school saved lives somehow. COVID hits 10 years later, and the, and the same agencies that knew that are the agencies that shut down the schools for two years. When they shut it down, 
they stopped the mandated reporters from being able to see children that were being abused and sexually molested and in fact sent them home and abandoned them to their abusers with no way to watch and referrals dropped 50 to 60 percent so there was also a yeah. pandemic yeah, going was, on they were trying to save they were trying lives, to save so kids well. lives remember we know a lot of folks who died during this so it wasn't people weren't laying Not around eating bond, but well you know what we're lucky maybe we're lucky they didn't because we kept them out of the 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 places that they could be sick because no one wanted to believe we had an issue. Are you saying no school children died of COVID? I'm saying it was the safest group. They were the less vulnerable group and they suffered and will suffer more from the mismanagement of COVID than they will from the exposure to COVID. And that's not an opinion. That's a fact. They act like there's still unclarity. Like, oh, well, we don't know. Maybe keeping them out of school is what saved their lives. No. Meta studies show no correlation, not just with kids, no correlation in general between these lockdown measures and reduced viral spread. It was made up. They're admitting now a lot of the standards, all the six foot stuff, all the rules they made up. They were, they were made up. They were not based in science and they had no scientifically observable effects but on schools specifically again we don't have to guess like they're saying well maybe maybe the reason the the death rates were so low is because we were so good about keeping them home from school not did all states do that universally because i noticed you guys love to demonize florida for opening up more quickly than other states south dakota under christy gnome really just the country's entire interior not these coastal insane places that kept kids locked up are there just piles of dead kids in florida in south dakota anywhere else in the country's interior no it made no difference these school lockdown measures on viral spread it did make a major difference in other damaging ways though closing schools of course dropped standardized test scores lowest levels since uh lowest levels in decades kids missed events with their friends and with their family they'll never get those back their entire life uh, and, and as Dr. Phil mentioned, that's a point that I haven't thought about, but I want to look at that a little bit more. Sometimes stay home, be safe, stay home, whatever. That assumes that your home is safe. If the home is broken or abusive or otherwise in need of intervention, it's not that safe. And I, I'm not a fan of government intrusion on parenthood and in the household. I want that limited, of course. But to his point, abuse does exist. And when we stop going after abuse because in the name of safety from the virus or something, well, that it stands to reason that would mean more abused kids. And sounds like he has data to that effect. We also now know that COVID and the flu were about the same thing in terms of risk for children. Not according to me, but according to, I don't know, NPR. Here's some NPR reporting in 2021. The risks to kids are similar between COVID and flu, but the perception of the risk is not. PolitiFact, all the way back in September of 2020, this wasn't some new revelation, Senator Ron Johnson said for younger people, seasonal flu is in many cases deadlier than COVID. PolitiFact's ruling mostly true, and they break down the numbers. Overall, the mortality rate for kids is about 1 in 100,000 for COVID. And we, there's something comparable with, with the flu as well. My, this number from COVID here might be a little bit higher than flu, but you know, we're still talking similar ballpark. And in no other context, in the context of the flu, even terrible flu years, have we ruined 999,000 kids' lives to protect one. And by the way, we didn't even protect the one anyway because these interventions did nothing. 
But being this delusional this late shows how detached these people actually are. I mean, it's time for another bo- uh, booster for Whoopi and company. I'm sure it's the only thing. It's the only thing saving their lives is all those boosters they've had. Last thing I want to talk about tonight before we get to uh, email questions and we'll close out with your super ch- uh, super chat was this moment in the uh, Virginia Senate on Monday. Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears serves as president of the Senate, and while they were considering a bill, she accidentally called transgender state Senator Danica Rome, sir, which caused uh, caused Senator Rome, or Roem, however you pronounce it, caused this transgender senator to storm out of the room. Madam President, how many votes will be would it take uh, to pass this bill with the emergency clause? That would be four-fifths, Senator. And what would be the exact number for that, uh, Madam President? Yes, sir, that would be 32. The question is, shall the bill pass? Those in favor of that motion will record their votes aye. Those opposed, no. I am not here to upset anyone. I am here to do the job that the people of Virginia have called me to do, and that is to treat everyone with respect and dignity. Okay, after the exchange, she apologized, saying she hopes everyone understands there was no intent to offend. I'd say that was the only mistake there, was uh, apologizing. Take a look at this photo up here. <laughs> Calling this man sir, I think, is, uh, is, is plenty of respect, probably too much. And if this person can't handle the respect of being called sir, in other words, if if words are going to cause this person such an emotional reaction that he's going to storm off the Senate floor, he's probably not cut out for government representation. We need tough leaders for tough problems, not dudes who are giant pussies or dudes who wish they had giant pussies. But... This is the voter's decision, I suppose. All right, uh, Tim, let's uh, let's check in with our uh, with our email questions. Yeah, no worries. There was a missed opportunity there. I'm really disappointed he didn't scream. It's man, and then storm out. Yeah, he could have had the better. callback to the GameStop incident. You're right. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we've got a couple of email questions tonight. Firstly, from Chris M. Hey, bundles of sticks. Uh, Thank I thought you. On the yeah, yeah, and if anyone doesn't know what that means, look up bundle of sticks and see what the actual word definition is. You'll figure it out. A thought on the Democrats voting for Haley so they can vote for Biden situation. If this practice was made legal and encouraged, would it help de-radicalize the political landscape? Would the most Republican Democrat against the most Democratic Republican be better overall or worse? So just for context, um, It is a pretty even mix of states that do open primaries for at least one party, meaning anybody can vote in that primary. You don't have to be registered, a registered member of that party to vote in the primary. My sources say 20 states of the 50 have at least one of their major parties running open primaries. But uh, I do actually think the more that we enable the sabotage vote, the more radicalizing that will be. At least this is my theory, and I don't have any data or social science to support it. But this is my thinking. When you have an open primary, there is an incentive from the opposing party to vote for, if not the most extreme, the least palatable candidate, the most unpalatable candidate, because you're the opposing party. You want them to suffer. You want them to put the weakest candidate in front of the the voters for the general election. So you sabotage, you go vote for their worst candidate. In many ways, that could be the most radical candidate, I suppose. 
that's how I would conceptualize these sabotage votes in theory. I understand right now it's not necessarily playing out that way exactly because the sabotage vote is just the anti-Trump vote. It's just get Trump. It's not really about political radicalization or not. It's just get Trump if you're a Democrat sabotage voter. I think Trump has a very unique hate vote that few candidates inspire. And Nikki Haley could be anybody. She could be an actual bag of dog shit. And the hate voters would still cancel all her plans and come out to vote. Dang it. I just, I, I remember I'm trying to try not to say bad words on this respectable show, but you know, I'll, I'll get with the program eventually. Um, in general, I, I would theorize or speculate that, that open primaries invite that polarization. They would invite more radical candidates, not more centrist candidates. Um, because there's no, the incentive for the opposition is to, is to is to pick those candidates for through a sabotage vote. But again, that's just my guess. It, it, I don't have data to back it up. Maybe there's some political scientist who's taken a look at that question. But then I thought about challenging this theory, the theory that the effect of um, open that open primaries would produce more radical candidates. On the other side of it, closed primaries. The effect of that is to give more power to the parties or the party bosses because you got to be a registered member of that party to participate in the selection of that party's candidate. And that means that the voter pool is going to be smaller. And that means it would theoretically be easier to pick a candidate who's less aligned with mainstream politics. So maybe I'm overestimating the partisan sabotage voter because I'm watching a lot of that right now. And maybe I'm underestimating the good faith independent. And as rabid as the sabotage hate voters are, there probably are more good faith independents who do go back and forth between parties than rabid partisans who have nothing better to do than sabotage the other guy. In general, if I'm creating the policy, my preference would still be closed primaries, though. I just think parties should have the right to pick their candidates without outsider meddling. But uh, but I don't know. I'd be, I'd be curious to see if I can find some actual analysis, some kind of data analysis that would answer the question from Chris about whether these things produce more radical or more centrist candidates. And it is an interesting thought experiment. And I, I thank you for that, Chris. Appreciate it. All right. One more from uh, long Dong John. You got it. Tim, did you die? Sorry. I've been muting because I'm coughing. I forgot oh, to yes, unmute my right. Pardon me. So you um, almost died. I would, not that it, not that it's possible, but I'd be curious if we were able to just strip out parties entirely and you had to vote for just an individual person, but I'm not sure that could ever happen. It's mostly a function of a winner take all system because yeah. you're gonna you're gonna have to organize into two groups because if it's winner take all, that's the that's just the way it's going to go. But yeah, fair yeah I mean I, I don't know. Would would it be better if we um if we changed it to facilitate more individualism and less you know, group effort in that way. I don't know. I mean, not that I'm not a big fan of either major party, so I suppose I should be open to it. Yeah. I, I just thought it'd be interesting if it could ever be done, but I don't think it will be. Anyway, long dong John, uh, if shenanigans, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is breaking. If shenanigans happen and the general election was between Haley and Biden, who would you endorse and why, or would you just advocate staying home? Now, if that actually happened, and Nikki Haley was alleged to have won the Republican primary. Um, I would call shenanigans and just say the whole thing is rigged because Nikki Haley voters are not real. They're just disguised Democrats. If we just discussed, 
uh, as we've just discussed, committing sabotage. So they're not real. That's a fake thing. I, I mean, that would whatever thread of faith I have left in the system would be torn by that development. Um, but uh, if it was a situation, I think we got a question like this on the Sunday show. If it was a situation, you're asking me gun to your head. You have to pick President Haley or President Biden. I'm going to pick President Haley, but it's not by as wide of a margin as it should be. I, I think she'd be better on the economy. She'd probably be at least a little better on the border, though the bar is rock bottom low on that. Probably about the same on foreign policy, though. She might be a, a little bit better on respecting constitutional boundaries uh, of both her office and and the rights of the people, perhaps on Second Amendment rights, too. Doesn't mean I'd campaign or I'd be emotionally invested in her victory or I think that her win would mean great things for the country or something. I think that fundamentally she and Biden are both people whose priority, if not their top priority, a high priority is taking money we don't have and sending it overseas and that's something that I generally oppose. Uh, so, and I think it's, I think it's damaging no matter who does it. And it's not that Trump hasn't done, uh, hasn't done his fair share of that too. I just think he's more persuadable and has better people around him who may explore doing less of that or not doing that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take Haley over Biden anyway. Thank you, uh, Long Don John. And as a reminder, if you'd like to send a, a an email question for consideration on the show, the one and only way to do that is through the contact page of my website, mattchristiansonmedia.com slash contact. Look for the MC Hour questions box. That'll do it. Let's catch up with our super chatters. We'll call it a night. Yeah, let's make sure we're unmuted this time because that might help. Well done. Um, thank you. <laughs> I'm good at my job. Okay. Uh, GR Token Man uh, is... <laughs> yeah. I think it might be G-I-A-R token, but whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever got clarification on the exact pronunciation, but I do know the last word we can't say. Yeah, I'm not saying that. Uh, Hi, my joggers. Do you know that President Trump can't win a general because he's losing 40% of voters, according to the candidate who cannot get 40% of her own (laughs) state voters? Hey, I think if you round up, didn't she get like 39.5 or something in South Carolina? You're not giving her enough credit. But yeah, fair point. But it's also an odd one because that assumes that everyone that voted for Nikki hates Trump and would never vote for him. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, that point too. Just a thought. Uh, bring back the call-in show. When will you start having your tenant media brethren on here, especially the two Laurens? Roo, roo, roo. <laughs> Thank you for that. Me. Thank you for that encouragement. Um, yeah, it's, it's totally. Well, uh, first of all, um, Taylor Hansen has been on the show. And that was uh, just after Christmas, just after the new year. But it's definitely possible that either Lauren, I assume you mean Chen and or Southern. Um, yeah. And we got uh, more great guests coming in future weeks. But um, the call-in show, you know, again, uh, it's as I mentioned, when the call-in show ended, it's not a forever no on calls anymore. Um, you know, we're the, the, the whole call thing is on break. Calls I'm open to and I think are fun. I don't know that I have the function yet to be completely open about that. Um, for me to have calls, especially on this show where it's not my platform per se, um, I need to have a dump button. Basically <laughs> I need to like, if, if I get the sort of call that, uh, you know, I would occasionally get on uh, my old Wednesday show, 
I can't really put uh, tenant on the hook for that. So it, it's not like they've told me you can't take calls. It's just I, I know what's going to happen if I if I do that. So I need to figure out a way to manage that. And then um, then I'm open to taking calls. I just don't know exactly how to accomplish that yet. On the old show, you know, we didn't keep the uh, the call in show on YouTube. And so I was comfortable taking the risk, especially because it's my own channel. It's like, well, you know, if I get you're not likely to to take the hit from some caller because the video is not staying up and we just send the audio to, to the podcast feeds and it's not a big deal. This situation's a little bit different. And so to manage that, it just I got to I got to have some other capabilities, but I'm actively thinking about it and investigating it. And I appreciate the encouragement. I'm glad you enjoyed the former show. So elements of it may return. Uh, and maybe someday blonde and I will resume taking calls in the old way too. never say never. Okay. And we just got one more that came in on rumble, uh, from GR token. Let's have the real election. Nikki Haley is the Democrat, uh, candidate vote Biden. If she gets a nomination and he does clarify it's pronounced GR. Oh, it is pronounced GR or G I A R G R. Oh, G R. Okay. It's pronounced G, letter G, letter yeah. R, G, R. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, Nikki so Haley, also- so you wait, Nikki Haley as the Democrat candidate, vote Biden if she gets the nomination. I'm confused on the premise here. What exactly is he saying? I'm not 100% sure. Let's have the real election, Nikki Haley as the Democrat candidate, vote Biden if she gets the nomination. I feel like he's saying that if she actually gets uh, selected for Republicans, she will just be the another Democrat. No, it's Democrat too, saying. I guess. Yeah, Democrat v. Yeah. Democrat. In ways, certainly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that looks like it for Rumble. I'm just going to head over to YouTube. Uh, so thank you, GR. He gave us all the ones from Rumble. It looks like Mint gave us all the ones for YouTube. So firstly, McConnell is a good rules lawyer. He's good at bogging down and wasting the time, money of Dems. He should never be allowed to lead anything else. He was a good roadblock. He was a good speed bump. I I agree. Um, yeah. Uh, point taken. Thank you, man. Uh, he also says, remember, rights only matter as far as you or the government, since we have all outsourced all this, are willing to enforce it. Everything else is just words on a piece of paper, meaningless. Yeah, it depends on depends on what you mean by matter, of course. And I understand what you mean when you say matter, you're saying like as a practical matter, like can you exercise your rights or not? Do you have the ability to do it or not? As a moral matter, you know, the government is not capable of erasing those concepts. Those concepts are eternal. And when the government violates them, it doesn't erase the concept of the wrongness. And one way or another, they they um will be held accountable for their wrongness when they violate rights in that way. It may be a slow process, but justice has a way of coming around. And um, for as unjust as these people are and their commitment to taking us further in that direction, I have faith that justice will be restored one day. And that is just a very general prediction, not a piece of advocacy, of course, YouTube overlords. Thank you, man. Okay, so one more from Min20 to the email question. I'm not sure which one he means. Uh, no, even if the underlying premise is true, the entire regime is evil. Moderation in an evil regime is still evil. In fact, it's worse than being radical, only by opinion, though. I think he's talking about the 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 primary question and I guess the definition of radicalization. Like, are centrist candidates actually, you know, quote unquote, good? I suppose would be at the heart of his question there are fringe candidates 
radicalized candidates are they quote unquote bad well it's a it's a relative consideration you know if the middle if what used to be the middle is now a mile left well then someone who's considered ra- radical relative to that benchmark might actually be completely sane and moral so yeah i take i take his point that i think he's making there that just because you're in the middle doesn't mean you're good it might mean you're half evil actually <laughs> which is uh, a problem and should be fought against but uh thank you man i appreciate it very much Okay, Thanks for so nothing new on Rumble, and I'm just mess- I'm just reloading. Yeah, super chat. No, nothing new there either. So that looks like it. Okay, well, thank you for your efforts despite your illness tonight. I appreciate no that worries. very Show much. Must go on. Yeah, <laughs> that's the spirit. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for tuning in tonight as well. If you missed any part of the show, or you'd like more to listen to, there's more content on my website, mattchristiansonmedia.com. There's also more content from Tenet Media. So. A like and a subscribe are much appreciated. And check out Tenet on X, Watch Tenet Now, at Watch Tenet Now, and Instagram, at Watch Tenet, for more as well. We'll be back each and every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a great night.